Yes. All right. Hey, we're in 2 Kings 24. Now, um, I am excited for this text and to just really close this out well and to really see um, how this ends. Um, But before we do that, it's crazy. I've actually for a long time always wanted to teach through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I've done stories here and there, um, but I've never taught through these, these books in this kind of a way. And it's been really refreshing for me, just in my faith, to kind of see the, the big picture of the Bible, different narratives, different themes, uh, different ways in which God works. I don't know if you've caught this throughout the series, but even just some of the minor prophets and where they are and who they speak into, um, even though we've been walking through these books, we're like introduced to so many other major and minor prophets. Major prophets meaning the Isaiahs and Jeremiahs, the larger books, and the minor, maybe like the Amos or Zephaniah, um, some of these prophets. And it's very cool to kind of see the big picture of this. So if you've been with us, just keep in mind, uh, after the nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea into the promised land, crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Eventually they had judges. Then they said, we're sick of this. We want a king like everyone else. So they raised up King uh, Saul. Then God raised up David, then Solomon. Only three kings were all 12 tribes were together. Then eventually the kingdom split. The northern kingdom was called, oh, come on guys. It's been a year and a half. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. There we go. If you guys remember, the northern kingdom fell first, and they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Assyrians. They're taken captive by the Assyrians. Most of them led into exile, slavery, uh, many killed off. And then you have the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah lasted over a century longer than uh, its brothers in the north. Uh, Judah actually had some good kings. The north never had one king that God could stamp and say, this was a good king or this king sought after me. Uh, Judah had at least five, some debate eight, good quality kings. If you guys remember last week, we looked at the last, technically the last good king of Judah. His name was Josiah, the best name there is. Um, But anyways, this guy, Josiah, led a revival. It was powerful. Sad to say, though. Next, his three sons and grandson are the next kings, and it's 22 and a half years of just utter chaos. Basically, Manasseh, Josiah's grandpa, was a very wicked and evil king. They would have been in destruction and overthrown by the Babylonians if it wasn't for that revival that took place. God, you know, basically showed mercy on them for an extended period of time. Here in chapter 24 and 25, we're seeing the kingdom of Judah come to an end. And I I really want to stress this because I know we've been in this for a while and we're closing this out, but there's so many big themes. There's so many classic things we have to take away from this. Obviously, any king you and I ever raise up, kings will come and go. Kings will fail us. Kings will hurt us. Kingdoms come and go. We see empire after empire fall. We see king after king fall. We just see this time and time again of eventually they want to do it their own way or their kids take it away and they want to do things. And you just see this, this empire crumble. Uh, and it's, it's hard to watch. The next, these two chapters today, I cannot stress this enough. If you want to take notes on this, but it is just filled with biblical history. Filled If you've ever wondered, like, what book? So Josiah, as he's the king, you have Zephaniah writing the book Zephaniah. And he's basically talking about God's coming wrath. And yet, that there will be a day of just basically the people being back in the land. And God rejoices over his people with praise and thanksgiving. Maybe remember Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah is a prophet during this time. Then you have Josiah's sons. As, he, as they're ruling and reigning, you have Jeremiah the prophet, who's around the time of Josiah, but primarily most of his work is done in these 22 and a half years here. Jeremiah is a prophet saying, guys, we're going to be taken captive. 
No one listens to Jeremiah. They beat up Jeremiah. They throw him in prison. They think he's a traitor. How dare you? Don't you have any national pride? Think about it. We're not going into captivity, but yet they're being taken into captivity. And they call it Jeremiah. Uh, we also see some other just prophets along the way. Amos. My point of just bringing this up is this, this is filled with biblical history. Uh, chapter 24 and 25, this is when Ezekiel is actually going to have uh, his revelation from God and write the book of Ezekiel. In the first uh, deportation out of Israel, this is where Daniel is taken. I mean, so much. So if you ever look at the Bible, you're like, this is overwhelming. What prophet was with who and who went where? Specifically, the way the kingdom of Judah closes out. I mean, we have Jeremiah. We have Daniel about to be written. Zeke, Ezekiel about to be written. There's so much scripture in this. And so I just kind of want you to feel that, see that, hear that. Because I want you to think about the promise of Abraham, the promise of Moses, the promise of you will have your land and you will rule and reign in your land and you'll prosper. And I want you to think about now this, this is tragically coming to an end in their minds. Yes, they'll be brought back in. But I want you to think about this, these years of exile in Babylon. The north is gone, wiped out. Judah, Benjamin, Levi, they're taken over to, to Babylon. Will we ever be back? Will we ever have a temple? Like, I want you to feel the hopelessness in these chapters. I mean, I can't imagine being invaded by a foreign invader, and then there's three, like, deportations. One wave of your friends is gone. The second wave, the third wave, no one's left. There's a, f- a small remnant. It's kind of chaos, guerrilla warfare, governors, no longer kings, but governors killed off, taken to Egypt. It's just wiped out. I want you to th- this is how this ends, 2 Kings 24, 25. Really hopeful message, right? But it, this is the idea, actually. Um, so much, and this has been helpful for me, beautiful for me, so much of Jeremiah has come alive to me again. I feel like it's been a long time like, to re-spark that. of like, yes, Lord, look at your promises, though, throughout this. Despite the chaos, look at your promises with Isaiah before all this went down. Let that, that God would raise up Cyrus, king of Persia, to release them and send them back into their land. And there's just so much on the cusp. Like, there's so much beautiful things that are about to happen. But first comes exile, human trafficking, slavery. It's awful. So I really want to understand, like, this moment that we're in and how this closes out. So we'll put this graph up here. Um, out of the 20 kings, you'll see here after Josiah, he, you have uh, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. You have son, son, grandson, grandson, son. That's how it flows in this. These four kings, you have three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. That's just the way it goes of how long they rule and reign. And in these 22 and a half years, it's just utter chaos. Are you guys with me? The next thing I'll put up just so you kind of see the big picture. Israel fell in 722 BC. Uh, Judah fell around 587, 586 BC. This is history. You can read this even in Babylonian writings. It's just, it's fascinating. But I want you to kind of put yourself and immerse yourself in the moment they're in. It is absolute, utter chaos being invaded. There's sieges happening. There's famine. People start eating their kids and children again, like we saw previously. I mean, terrible thing. I mean, utter chaos. And yet, God through Jeremiah is based on yet there is still a future and a hope for you. And so the title today is A Future and a Hope. A Future and a Hope. Despite it felt like there is no hope. God is still so gracious enough to say, I still have a future and a hope for you. So this is, when Jeremiah writes that, and we'll look at that, this is when it's written. So the passages, I want you to turn to 2 Kings 24, Jeremiah 29, Matthew 1. Um, the passages, these all connect here to 2 Kings 24 and 25. I want you to see the big picture. 2 Chronicles 36, that's also, we're closing out this. All right, you guys ready? I know that's a lot. Are you guys ready? You guys with me? Are you tracking this? Despite the utter tragic ending, there's still a future and a hope something they can cling on to. 
And so um, we're just going to read 2 Kings 24, verse 1 through 4, and then we'll unpack the rest later. All right, let's just read 2 Kings 24, verse 1 through 4. We're looking at the second king uh, after Josiah. His name is Jehoiakim, verse 1. 2 Kings 24, verse 1. It says, In his days, uh, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Very hopeful text. Let's pray. We'll look at this more in depth. Jesus, we just want to say, um, as we sung earlier, there is power, true, true power in your name. There is salvation in your name. That Jesus, Yeshua, you are the one that everyone either looked forward to or now we look back on in faith. God, that there's no king, there's no prophet, there's no priest that could ever meet the deepest needs of our life other than you. And God, as we just close this out, we ask that these stories would not just be stories, but that you would write them on our hearts, that as the author, that as Paul wrote in Romans, that they would produce hope, that these are written for our learning, and that they might produce hope. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would be blessed by this time, that you would accomplish and do what it is you want to do. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, you can imagine for them, for us, I mean, we, we all need hope, obviously. Hope is a very powerful thing. It's actually mind-blowing how powerful hope can be. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy named Kurt Richter. Uh, this is an experiment he did in the 1950s. You cannot do this experiment anymore. Uh, he did an experiment with rats. And basically, I'll summarize and read what it says about his experiment. But he basically took some rats. He did a couple different types of experiments. But he took some wild rats. He took some like domesticated rats. And he basically put them in a jar of water and basically saw how long they could last until they drowned and died. Now, okay, 1950s, guys, okay? Just take it easy. Like, no, the poor rats. Like, they're rats. Sorry. Uh, anyways. He did this experiment, and again, 1950s, sorry, I'm not, but anyways, he did this experiment. They would not do this anymore, but he called it like the hope experiment, and he did this experiment on these rats, and he saw they died within some couple minutes, some a little bit longer. He found out that, you know, on average, the baby lasted 15 minutes. He basically, at the end of the next kind of round of doing this uh, with these rats, he, right before they were about to give up and just drown in the water, he rescued them, and he'd rescue these rats, and he would do this, and he would basically nurse them back to health, get them in a better place. And then when they were ready, he'd put them back in the water. And they went from maybe, maybe lasting 15, 15 minutes. And this experiment basically says they went from 15 minutes to, I don't you know, how long do you guess more? Like 30 minutes more, an hour more? They last about 60 hours more, uh, these rats, the ones that were rescued and nursed back to health. And he did this time and time again. And the whole idea was he looked at hope and said, wow, hope is a very powerful thing. The fact that they said, may, maybe, maybe someone will rescue us again right before we give up. Maybe there will be someone. Um, hope is interesting because it is not just wishful thinking. Um, if you got in a car accident in the past, you can't say, I hope I didn't get in a car accident. No, you, you wish you didn't. 
Hope, though, is just saying, no, no, there is a possibility that maybe this won't be the outcome. Biblical hope is even different. It's this confident expectation that the God who's been faithful then will continue to be faithful today. And the reason why I want to share this, obviously, is um, hope is incredibly powerful. I think what I want you to see, because this is one of the most, tra- I mean, when you read 2 Kings 24, 25, 2 Chronicles 36, think about this, Father Abraham or Moses, these great legends of the faith. You're going to have a nation that as much, as, as innumerable as the stars or the sand. Moses, you're going to enter to the promised land. And all of this, it seems in their mind, it just seems to be coming to an end. Like I really want you to think about it. like J- Israel's done. Judah, you're surrounded by the Babylonians. Wave after wave of your people being taken to exile. Like there's no hope in your mind. I don't know if you've ever gotten that place where you're like, God, is there anything you can do? Like, is there any good that can come out of this? Like, there, this seems like it's done. It seems like it's over. And during this time of like this tragic, awful ending, like there really isn't that many things to be like, well, this is a good thing to like focus on. But during this time, God's like, I want to show you and offer you hope. You will be back. And God is actually very specific. You'll be back in 70 years. God actually gives him a timeline. You will be back and you will be back in 70 years. Now that might not feel great in the moment. I might not see that. My kids might not see that. Maybe my grandkids. But even then, like, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that do for you? And there's these different examples we have throughout. It's not just Second Kings, but different prophets and different examples we have for what that hope can do for us in the moment. So here's the three points. As we just close out this series, as we close out these books, as I hopefully we put an exclamation point to the idea of why do we even have the book of Kings, First and Second Kings? What is this? Here's the three points today. Um, there's, we're going to see the end of a kingdom. And this is just also big picture. The end of a kingdom, the hope for the exile, the kingdom with no end. The end of a kingdom, the hope for the exile. I almost want to put just the hope for the, even the kingdom, the hope for the exile and the kingdom, and the kingdom that has no end, the kingdom with no end. So let's look at number one, uh, the end of a kingdom. All right, you guys ready? Let's just kind of walk through this. The end of a kingdom. I want to put up, like, just by, by the way, like a little kind of um, breakdown, chapter 24 and 25. Here's what's happening. Just put this up here at five points. Uh, we're going to see the king is dethroned. We're going to see the people are deported. The city is destroyed. The temple is disgraced. And the land was desolate. Uh, I, I want you to read this on your own time. Like, please get familiar with it. But in chapter 24 and 25, look all that happened. The king, the people, the city, the temple, the land. Done. Just gone. I mean, if it could go bad, it went bad. Like, everything bad that could happen, happened. That's essentially how this book closes out for the most part. Just everything's lost. Now, in this time, just so you kind of are aware of like, the big picture, after Josiah, like I mentioned, he had four or three sons, one grandson, that rule and reign. Now you have Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, uh, and then you have Zedekiah. Now they have different names because whether the Egyptians named the king when they made different treaties or the Babylonians named the king. So if you ever read this and get confused, I want to put the four kings up here uh, just so you're familiar with this. Jehoahaz reigned three months. Jehoiakim reigned 11 years. Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, reigned for three months. Uh, Zedekiah reigned for 11 years. That's how long they reigned. Let's just kind of break this down. There is a phrase after all of them. It says their name, and then it says this phrase, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All right? So Josiah, the revival, it's over. He, then the next king, he did what was evil in the eyes of God. The next king did what was evil, did what was evil. It's just, oh, it's just filled with evil. Just that's your kingdom. It's just coming to an end. The kingdom they're living in is going, this is just evil. 
nonstop. We're being overtaken. This is awful. We'll just kind of break down these kings so you can kind of get a feel for the moment they're in. Jehoahaz, just you know, all we really know, he reigned three months. He was taken captive by the Egyptians. He actually died in Egypt. Jeremiah makes reference that he most likely in his three months built himself a really sweet and sick palace, and then that was it. Oh, people are suffering. We're surrounded by the Babylonians. Let me build my own house. I don't care about y'all. That was Jehoahaz. Next king, Jehoiakim or Eliakim. We have more information on him. He reigned 11 years. The first deportation from Israel to Babylon happened during his kingdom. I want you to think about this. He reigned 11 years. The Babylonians come in, take a group of people with them back to Babylon. Daniel was a part of that. Uh, this has kind of like been called in the past, and like different countries always do this. They call this like the brain drain. It's almost like, okay, we're taking over your country. How do we take the most skilled and gifted people? We want the engineers. We want the doctors or lawyers. We want the most brilliant people. During his time, they took some of the most brilliant people with them. Daniel, being a young teenage boy, taken into Babylon. By the way, imagine this, like parents, your, your, your teenager's taken from you, and you're just praying and hoping, God, I hope they can have faith in a foreign land. I hope they can have faith as an exile. And man, Daniel crushed it. His boys, Shad, Rad, Meshach, Abednego, all, they just crushed it. But what I love about this is they're teenagers, and they're like, we're going to remain different, set apart. God's going to bless them and use them mightily. I really can't fathom, like, my teenage boy, if when he gets to that point of like, oh, wow, someone being taken to a foreign land and says, I'm going to have faith and trust in the Lord alone. This was during Jehoiakim's time. So just know that the book of Daniel actually mentioned this in, in verse 1 through like 11. It talks about during Jehoiakim's reign, Daniel's taken. And so Daniel's about to be like written during this time. So we're connecting the dots a little bit with books of the Bible. Yeah? Okay. Hopefully a little bit. So Daniel's taken. This guy, Jehoiakim, actually take Jer- takes Jeremiah's prophecies that he wrote on a scroll. He cuts them up and throws them in a fire. So you can actually read this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is pleading with Jehoiakim. He's, he's calling him to repentance. He's saying, we're going to go into exile. It's going to be 70 years. And he's like, stop it. My other prophets aren't saying that. And this guy hates Jeremiah, throws him in prison, beats him up, abuses him. Jehoiakim takes his writing, burns them, throws him in the fire. Think about this. The son of Josiah, he's throwing the word of God from Jeremiah in the fire. Josiah loves the word. There's a revival based off the word. They find the word. Revival breaks out. His son takes the word, throws it in the fire. I want you to see this guy's heart, his disposition, what's happening. You can read about that in Jeremiah. Uh, It says this too clearly in 2 Kings 24, verse 2. We just read it, but I want to make this really clear. It says, the Lord sent against him, this king, Jehoiakim, the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. This is less about Babylon, you know, inflicting pain and wrath on them. And more the Lord say, no, no, this is my doing. I'm even over this. I'm sending these people to raid you. I'm sending these people to come into your town and bring you into exile. You've been so disobedient for centuries. You, you've walked away from me. You've been served me. And so this is the Lord's, like, my hands, even over the wrath and destruction, the Lord is sovereign over that, is what Kings is saying. After him, you had a short-term reign from Jehoiachin or Jeconiah or Kaniah. You might see a few different ways it's worded, depending on what author it is. But Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, Kaniah, you can read about him in Jeremiah. There's actually quite a bit about him, even though he only reigned three months. The second deportation out of Israel into Babylon happened under him. This is when Ezekiel writes about Jeconiah, writes about this is when he got his revelation from God. 
So Ezekiel's now, like, think about Daniel is taken, Ezekiel's being taken, and Ezekiel gets his insane and amazing revolution, uh, uh, revelation from God. He sees this new temple. All the different things that Ezekiel writes about happens during the exile, being taken from uh, Jerusalem into Babylon. So I want to fathom that like, Ezekiel's being written during this time as well. You guys track with me? I think this is fascinating. Maybe this is just me nerding out. No? I don't know. Um, read Ezekiel. Unbelievable things he prophesies about. But he's taken during this time. The gold and the temple items are destroyed. Jeconiah actually gives himself up to the, the king of Babylon. He actually surrenders himself over. We're going to see later with Jeconiah, um, he's actually raised up kind of in the kingdom. Basically, if I imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar or the son of Nebuchadnezzar, you're the king of Babylon, and basically of all of these kings in your court that you've overthrown their kingdom, um, it's basically like he raised up Jeconiah like, hey, you can wear nice garments. You can eat the best food. He actually gives him a stipend, it says. You get some money. Basically, so look, I'm a generous and good king. This is kind of the take that the Babylonian kings have over the other kings. It's a way to also assimilate them into their culture and say, no, no, no. Yeah, we might have raped and you know, pillaged your, your towns and your kingdoms, but we're pretty good people. Um, so he actually raised up Jeconiah. Now, this is actually very important because if Jeconiah is alive, doesn't die. The line of David continues through Jeconiah meaning there would always be a king that would come from the throne of David. How did this still survive through Jeconiah? As awful as he was, as terrible as he was, as much of a coward as he was, he's a part of the Davidic line that eventually, as we'll see, will lead to Jesus. And this is God's faithfulness to actually even let him have a position amongst the kings. You guys track with me? Okay, that's the third king. You have Jeconiah, uh, Jehoiachin, uh, and then you have lastly Zedekiah. This is the last king. He goes by different names as well. He reigned for 11 years. There's a severe famine. We'll put this up here in case it's, hopefully it's up there. He reigned for 11 years. There's a severe famine. This third and last deportation to Babylon happens. Zedekiah's sons are murdered in front of them. Then they you know, pluck out his eyes. The last visual he has is his kids being killed in front of him. Then they pluck out his eyes. And they as well um, take him. So he's blind. He, this is during the time where the walls of Jerusalem, the temple, everything's laid bare, everything's laid waste. If you remember after the 70 years, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, like, let's rebuild these walls that happened during Zedekiah's time. So it, you guys track with the idea of like now Nehemiah's going to come up and say, hey, Zedekiah, terrible king, everything was abolished, let's rebuild. So my point is this, the reason why I'm, I'm giving you this much history, I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see what's going on. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, soon uh, Nehemiah, Habakkuk even, Haggai, like all these different prophets are being introduced around this time or right after this time, during this time. And here's what I want us to see. This is so crazy to me. Amongst trage like this tragedy, your, your kingdom's coming to an end. The promise of Abraham, the promise of Moses. It's mind-blowing to me how God is just flooding his people with visions and dreams. Joel, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Utter chaos. You're in Babylon. You're in exile. But God is flooding his people with dreams and visions of things to come, of the temple that will remain forever, which Israel still does not have to this day, a temple that has no end, where God will pour out his spirit and the young men will prophesy and the old men will dream dreams and everything that like, this is just happening. God is just flooding his people with dreams and visions. They're writing. It's crazy to think about this because that's why I want to make this really clear. As awful and as terrible as this time was, people are beginning to hear from God at an intense level, like spike like on the charts if you look at this. You think about it. The huge books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Dan, huge books. God is just like flooding them with dreams and visions, encounters with angels. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. As awful and terrible as it is, we have so much scripture that is based from this. And during that time, God is just trying to flood his people with hope. 
And I think this is a great lesson or word for us because as I'm reading this, and it just feels like history, right? Like when you're reading this, you're like, oh God, this just feels like a lot of kings that are terrible and they get taken to exile and what's the point? And for me, like when you stand back, I'm like, oh wait, Lord, in times of chaos and tragedy, you flood your people with your spirit? As awful as it is and that no one wants to go to exile, no one wants to be a slave in a foreign land, no one wants any of this, but yet God, people are, many people are beginning to turn their hearts towards you. You have the Ezra's and Nehemiah's coming soon. You have more revival coming soon. I get, my point is, I, I, which I love this about our God. God, by the way, is he not a God who just warns? It's not like God didn't warn them. I mean, look at Isaiah. It's just filled with like warning, like repent. It's just filled with like, you don't have to go to destruction. God is so great. I, I want you to make sure to hear this because sometimes in the Old Testament, we give God a terrible rap and God has been prophet after, God has sent prophet after prophet, word after word. He's just warning them, repent, turn to me, stop serving these idols. Here's what's ironic about this. God's like, you want idols? I'm going to send you to like the headquarters of all idols, Babylon. And when the music plays, you're going to bow down. Like God is like, you want that sin? I'm going to give you fully into it. You remember like, I don't know, old school stories, like your parent finds you smoking a cigarette and like, you're going to spend the whole pack now. It's like kind of that. It's like, you want idols? You're going to get idols. And this is what's happening. They're in Babylon. They're being told now to worship these pagan gods, these foreign gods. But yet, God has been so good and so gracious in raising up Daniels and Ezekiels and Jeremiah's and eventually Ezra's and Nehemiah. Like, it's unbelievable what God is doing. He's just flooding his people with dreams and visions. My, again, my hope and for us and for today, if you ever feel like, are we losing this? Are we in exile? Are we the ones, like, we don't have, like, a grasp on, like, reality? What's up is down and down. Like, what is going on? This is a hope and opportunity to say, God, pour out your spirit. You said in the last days, God, your young men will have visions, your old men will dream dreams. Like, are we not? The book of Acts takes that prophecy out of Joel and says, um, we're in the last days. Okay, how much more now 2,000 years later? How much more now? You might, we might feel like, are we losing this thing? Whatever this thing is, are we losing like our inf- Christians' influence? Like, people despise our values, our morals, our lifestyle. When you feel like this is coming to an end, I would say, God, God, pour out your spirit. We're about to be exiles in a foreign land, whatever. Pour out your spirit. Just a heads up, I'm probably doing Daniel next year, so just keep all this book in mind right now for like six more months, okay? Um, but this is just what it is. It's just, it's God so, so good, despite so much wickedness from the kings, so much unfaithfulness, so much vision, so much, so many books of the Bible are being poured out during this awful and tragic time. You guys with me? If you want to know why did this city come to an end, Jeremiah tells us. Jeremiah 22. Why, why this chaos? Why four terrible kings? Why the end? Why the end of Jerusalem? Jerusalem is called that eternal city. It's supposed to have a foundation. It has no end. Here's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 22 verse 8. He says, and many will pass by this city. Jeremiah in Jerusalem. Imagine this. He's prophesying. Guys, many will pass by this city. And every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? Why has there become such destruction upon Jerusalem? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Just so simple. You, you've worshiped other things above God. That's why our city's in ruin. That's why it's in chaos. I haven't reigned supreme. I warned you that you cannot go into this land and serve other gods. And that's exactly what you did. So I say, why, why this city? Why the city of God, Jerusalem? It says God's name is stamped on Jerusalem. Why did the city come to an end? Because they served other gods. So this is Jeremiah prophesying during this time of Zedekiah, Jehoiachin. Like, this is all happening. Jeremiah's writing about this. Like, guys, we're about to go to exile. Please listen to me. Please hear me out. But again, something was above him. I love what one author wrote, G. Campbell Wright, J. Campbell Wright. He said, most men aren't satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. 
Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world, his purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. He's like, you, we've been missing it. We've been serving other gods. You will not find that joy, that purpose, that deep satisfaction until you're living in or leaning in to the way in which Christ has made you. He's like, you're settling. Listen, the point of this um, is this was not how it was supposed to be. The story of kings was not supposed to end this way. It, it, it didn't have to go down this way. It didn't have to go down with Zedekiah being blinded, his sons being murdered and taken. It did not have to go down this way, but this is how it went down. We learned so much from kings, obviously. It's like, do not waste your life. Do not waste what God has given you, whatever he has given you. Use it for him and his glory. Don't throw it away. Don't make those things that you think are important, master things, preeminent things. Do not put that above him or before him. This led to the downfall of Israel and then eventually of Judah. This is what led to their, 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 them falling apart. So here's the idea. Number one is the end of a kingdom, meaning every kingdom of this world will come to an end. Every king, this is the end of Israel, the end of Judah, essentially, in their minds. And here's the idea. Every kingdom will come to an end. We will see a kingdom that has no end. But here's the second point I want to make really clear. Number two is this. It's the end of the kingdom. Number two is this, the hope for the exile. The hope for the exile. If you would, turn to Jeremiah 29. Because Jeremiah is writing during the first, second, and third wave of people being taken into Babylon. And I think one of the greatest chapters that we often misinterpret or misunderstand is Jeremiah 29. And it is foundationally saying, hey, exile, hey, people in a foreign land, here's how you're to live now. This is not your home, but you're going to prosper this home. So Jeremiah 29, as you're turning there, I want to make it also really clear, all right, and the, the book of Second Chronicles tells us how this ends. I'll read the verse up here. So Jeremiah 29, but let me read to you Second Chronicles 36. It says this. Uh, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, and told the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, and all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years." Let me give you the big picture really quick. Why 70 years? Okay, so 70 years, they're going to be in exile. After 70 years is over, Cyrus, king of Persia, is going to say, you know what? Go back. Rebuild your town, Jews. Go back. Rebuild Jerusalem. That happens. But why the 70 years of exile? Leviticus 25 warned the people this idea. It says, hey, six years you take care of the land. On the seventh year, it rests. So here's Leviticus 25. Just I want you to see the big picture. He says in Leviticus 25, when you come into the land which I give you, is this not the land? When you come into the land which I give you, God says, the promised land, the land they're in, Judah, Israel, when you come into this land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. So here's the idea. For about 490 years from David to Zedekiah, King David to Zedekiah, uh, they have not kept this. There was not six years of tilling the land and having the land rest for one year. It's been like about 490 years. So the God's like, hey, you owe me 70 years of Sabbath on the land. You guys track with me. God's like, you owe me 70 years of Sabbath. I told you in Leviticus 25, I told you that when you enter the land, 
You're going to work hard for six years. You're going to take a break. The land's going to take a break. And by the way, that was supposed to be a blessing. Hey, like a year of no work. I'm a farmer. Okay. All right, sweet. Do it really well. Save up really well. Be smart. Have the Joseph mentality. I get a year off of work. Unbelievable. Thank you, God. But nope, they didn't want to take God up on that blessing. We're going to work every year. We're going to squeeze, squeeze every penny. We're going to do what we can do. So God's like, you owe me 70 years. This is part of the judgment as well. So you go into Babylon. You're going to be in exile. You owe me 70 years. You'll be there for 70 years. Then you'll come back into the land. This is what Jeremiah said. Second Chronicles 36 records it. Jeremiah records it. Are you guys still tracking with me? 70 years now, they have to be in Babylon. They have to be in exile. So here they are. They're in Babylon. They are. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm in Babylon. I've been taken. I'm a slave. I, I, I've been human trafficked. I'm now in a foreign land. This is terrible. Here's what Jeremiah says to them and how they're to live in the land. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. You guys there? You guys ready? Because there's hope for the exile. Here's what Jeremiah says. Hear me out. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent, I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its peace, in its shalom, you will have uh, your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, everyone say 70. 70. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Just hear that, by the way. 70 years you're going to be in exile. 70 years fulfilling Leviticus 25. 490 years you've had David, you have Zedekiah, you have not rest the land. You're going to be here for 70 years. But here's what God says, and this is so profound. God is saying, hey, increase. Do not decrease. Make the land prosper. Care. Care about the city in which you're in. Care about that. Um, imagine that. Imagine being taken captive until you name the city. I'm not going to name cities. I don't want to throw any country under the bus. You name a city. Imagine being thrown into that land and God's like, you need to pray for that city. You need to prosper that city. You need to benefit that city. Don't be overcome by the city. You increase, do not decrease. You multiply. You plant vineyards. You build homes. Make sure your kids get married and have kids. I love what God is saying. God is saying a couple of different things. One, don't assimilate. Don't become just like the Babylonians. Don't assimilate. But also, don't become so bitter that you, you embrace this idea of like sectarianism or you embrace this idea of tribalism. We're going to do our own thing. We don't care about Babylon. We don't care about the city. We only care about us. God says both. Grow your family. Build homes. Make sure he talks about the welfare. It's literally the Hebrew word shalom. The, the peace of the city. Not just like peace, but like the economic peace, the social peace, the every side of peace that you can encompass. Make sure you care about the peace of the city. He's like, you're basically saying, you're not going to assimilate. You're not going to be tribal. You're going to be a city on a hill. You're going to be a light in a dark place. You're not here to just constantly hate on it. You're going to seek the benefit of it and pray for it. There are so many insane and beautiful crossovers, obviously, for us today. The idea of an exile is basically is communicated in the New Testament, the, the idea that we are pilgrims and strangers in this world. The Bible says, 1 Peter 2 says, we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're exiles. This is not our home. If you feel like, I don't feel at home here, 
Yeah, that's right, because this is not your home. You are built for another city. Babylon is not necessarily their city, Jerusalem. And here's the idea, biblically speaking. Babylon was always a a representation of man-made city. Jerusalem always spoke of like a God-heavenly city. Did not fulfill its requirement, but the idea was, oh, we're made for a different city, but yet God tells me to benefit this city. That's like when Jesus says, you're not in, you're not, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Like this is not your home, but you benefit this world around you. We're salt. We're light. We bring benefits to our community. Here's what I find so beautiful about this. As followers of Jesus, we are to be salt. We are to benefit those around us. We are to say, you know what? We as Christians, we don't just even care about our own. We care about the people around us. He's like, pray for the city. Pray for the people around you. Christians, please take this to heart. It's easy for us to get bitter at the cultural, the world, this moment we're in, just to be frustrated. God's like, pray for it. Pray for it. Increase benefit it. Love it. Serve it. He's saying serve the city. Pray for the shalom. Pray for the peace. Fight for that. So as Christians, we got to avoid a couple things. We cannot assimilate. We cannot just become like the Babylonians. Daniel stood out in that way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood out in that way. Okay, we're not going to, we're not going to become just like it, but we can't become tribal and us versus them. And we don't care about you. He's like, pray for it. Love it. Serve it. Benefit it. Grow. This is such a beautiful thing. As followers of Jesus, my job is not just to talk about how much, how bad and how terrible the world has fallen apart. How do I seek to redeem? How do I seek to restore? How do I seek to say, yes, this city is imperfect. Yes, it's going to fail its time and time. And there is a better city that awaits us. And I want to live as if we're in that city. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. That idea was live as if you're in the kingdom now. Yes, you'll be in the kingdom one day, but we can't just have this mindset of like, well, one day when we get out of this mess, live now as if you're in the kingdom of God because this is his. All of the earth is the Lord's. And he's saying, hey, you're in Babylon, you're in exile. You're going to benefit it. You're going to pray for it. You're going to help it. You're going to grow it. Do you see what God is saying? It's unbelievable for us today. You might feel like an exile. You might feel like an outsider. You might feel like we're the most wicked city that's ever existed. Welcome to Babylon. That is the idea for them. And God is like, you're going to pray for it, love it, serve it, seek to redeem it, make the most of it. I find this so beautiful what God is saying. You're not going to assimilate. You're not going to become tribal and us against them. You're going to seek to be light in a dark place. Salt in a place that needs salt. You're going to stand out. You're going to look different, obviously. You're going to live differently. But you're not going to just become bitter in your heart towards it. You're going to make it better. Seek the prosperity of this city. And that is such a beautiful mentality for us. God, how, how do I seek to redeem? Not just be bitter and frustrated and angry but okay, Lord, let me be a a, a salt and light in a dark place. Help us to stand out as as followers of you, Jesus. Yes, there's a city that awaits me, but you know what? The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said, is here. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's not just when you die. The kingdom of heaven is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Help us live as if we're in that city now. Are you tracking with me? This is what God is saying, and it's so beautiful. We'll keep moving. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know you're waiting for that verse. So God says this in verse 10. He says, I will visit you, and I will uh, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. God's like, 70 years, 70 years, guys, I'll bring you back to this place. I promise. But make the most of this. Don't just be bitter at it. Verse 11, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know that a lot of Christians I've talked to are like, oh, this verse is so abused. People misuse this verse. And I'm like, you're right. 
I don't think we know how good it is. God is saying to a wicked people that at one point in time, and very recently in their history, are murdering their babies on statues they've heated up to extreme temperatures. They've killed their children. They're eating their children right before this with Zedekiah. They're being taken. They're, they're wicked people. And what does God say to the wicked people of Israel? I know the plans I have for you. I know the thoughts I have for you. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So when people say, Christians, take this first and pull it out of context, I'm like, you're right. And they don't even actually bring it into context enough. God says to a really wicked group of people that want nothing to do with them, Jeremiah's like, pleading, repent. No one ever repents. God is saying, you know the plans I have for you? They're good. Like, to who? To people who wanted nothing to do with him. God's like, I have a future and a hope for you. Do you understand this? Like, I don't think we know this enough. This verse is, I think, so much more extreme than we even give it credit. If God can say that to them then, how much more to followers of Jesus today? If God can say Jeremiah 29, 11, to these people who wanted nothing to do with him, how much more could he say to believers in Jesus, participators in the kingdom of heaven, those of us who've been born again, hey, I know the plans I have for you. I know the thoughts I have for you, man. They're good. They're not evil. It's to give you a future and a hope. It's like, that doesn't apply to us. I think it applies to us infinitely more. Yes? It applies to us infinitely. God has seen this to them then. How much more to us today? So God is like, live in the city, benefit it, be salt and light, stand out, build, increase, don't decrease, increase, multiply, make disciples, increase the city. Don't just call it out. Don't be tribal. Don't assimilate. Redeem. I know the thoughts I have for you. I want to give you a future and hope. You can imagine, Jeremiah's in Jerusalem writing this about Babylon, people in Babylon. I'm in Jerusalem. Hey guys, make the most of Babylon. God has a plan for you, a future and a hope for you. doesn't feel like that in the moment. Jeremiah's like, luckily we actually know the time frame. That's cool. We know it's 70 years. And God has so much more in store, but make the most of this. You cannot just become bitter and give up in the process. Do not give up. Do not stop having kids. Do not stop growing. He's like, do not give up. Keep going. This is unbelievable. He goes on to say in verse 12, then you will call upon, uh, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God is so good. You do not deserve to go back in the land. You do not deserve this promised land, but I'm going to bring you back. Prosper, make the most of this, make the most of this time here, but I'm going to bring you back because I'm just a God who is so gracious. So when you read 2 Kings 24 and 25, and it's literally awful after all, they're losing their land, their temple, their kings, the people, slavery, everything that could go bad is going bad. And God says, I have a future to hope for you. Through Jeremiah, during the time of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, I have a plan for you. How unbelievable is that? Jeremiah 29 to me means way more than we even give it credit. Way more. You'll call upon me, you'll seek me, you'll find me. You're going to find me. But you have to be completely devoted to me and this plan I have for you. And here's the thing. This frustrates us because God says, I know the plans I have for you. And you go, well, I don't know the plans. I don't know them. You know them. That's good for you. But here's the point. I don't know the plans, but I know the person who has the plans. And that's the idea. I know the plans I have for you. That's enough. Because I know the person who has the plans, and what is his desire? To give you a future and a hope. He says, I want to give you a future and a hope. In the midst of being taken into slavery and into exile, God is like, no, you're going to come back, and there's a future for you. There's a hope for you. Make the most of this time. Grow, increase, multiply. Don't decrease. Our God is so unbelievably good, 
despite this wicked moment in history. And here is the idea for me. The author of Hebrews, I think, picks up on this so well. He's like, make the most of your time in this city. Pray for the prosperity of the city. But the whole idea is Jerusalem or Babylon, it will never satisfy anyways. It was never meant to be the city in which you and I live in. The author of Hebrews 13, 14 says, for, we, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here the author of Hebrews, he says, here there is no city that lasts. Jerusalem, come and go. Babylon, come and go. But there is a city we're looking for. In Revelation 21, we read about this heavenly city that comes down from above. And this is the city you and I were made for. He's like, make the most of this now because you're going to be living there then. And the kingdom of God is not just one day, it's today. And I love that God's like, your true home is in this place, in this city. We're lo- why, why do we not feel at home here? Because we were made for another home. Because this is not our city, but we make the most of it. We don't despise it. We bless it. We seek the prosperity. We seek shalom for where we live. But yet we're on our way to a better city. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's what the author of Revelation is saying. There's a better city that awaits us. So here's the last point. Um, we know number one, the kingdom ends. Number two, there's hope for the exile. But number three is this, the kingdom with no end. Hear me out. The kingdom with no end. There is a kingdom that has no end. And if you would, it's 2 Kings 25, 29, I'll put it up here. It says, so Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. Here's the idea. In 2 Kings 25, Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, God's like, hey, you're going to dine, or God allows the king of Babylon to say, you're going to dine here. You're at home here. Here's the idea. Jeconiah is the guy in which the Davidic line continues. So God says, David, you're going to have a kingdom that has no end. I thought the kingdom ends. Jeconiah lives. He has a kid. He has a kid. He has a kid. And I want us to turn to Matthew 1. This is going to bring us to Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, it says this. We'll put the verses up here really quick. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Look in verse 12. We'll fast forward. It says, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. We'll keep going and so on. Towards the end, verse 14, he says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Why am I saying this? 2 Kings 24 and 25 actually ends in this way. It said, hey, 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 the kingdom does not end in 2 Kings 25. Jeconiah goes to Babylon. He has kids. They have kids. They have kids. They have have kids. It leads us to Joseph, the stepfather, the one who adopted Jesus. Here's the point. He's saying the kingdom of David did not end like I promised. Jeconiah lived. His kids lived. His kids lived. His kids lived, which leads us to Joseph, which leads us to David or to Jesus. The reason why I'm bringing this up is there is a kingdom promise that has no end. Though every kingdom has come and gone, there was a kingdom that will be established forever. Nathan the prophet, uh, Samuel the prophet, all said the same thing. There will be a kingdom that has no end, and that is the kingdom of Jesus here in this verse. My point is this, guys, as we close out 2 Kings, here's the verse, here's the thought. The story of kings is to create a deeper longing for the one true king a righteous king, a king who serves, a king who loves, a king who sacrifices, a king who left his kingdom so we could become heirs of his kingdom, a king who was exiled so we could be brought in. There is a king who is the king of kings. His name is Jesus, the son of David. There is no other king that satisfies the deepest desires of our heart 
other than King Jesus. Here's the idea. We are closing out this series in 2 Kings with tragedy. Everyone dies and is taken captive, but God says there will be a king that will have no end. His kingdom will have no ends. There will be a king who will rule and reign forever. The story of First and Second Kings is tragedy after tragedy, and yet God says there is a future and a hope for you because we have Jeconiah who leads us to King Jesus. My point of even doing this today and how I just want to end our time here is this. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are part of a world that is constantly shaking, but the author of Hebrews says we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I just want to read this verse and pray us out. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with God as a consuming fire. Here's how we're going to end Kings. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what does he say? So let us worship. We have a kingdom that will never fade away. Even though kings and kingdoms come and go, the king of kings will rule and reign forever. Therefore, let us worship for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let's just pray. Let's just worship. Let's thank our God. Let's do that now. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful truth that though kings have come and gone, Jesus, you will remain forever. You are the king who rules widely, wisely. You are the king that Jeremiah told us about. You are Jehovah Sidkenu. You are the righteous king. You are the king that will never fail us. Lord, we look forward to your kingdom, but we ask that today, right now, our church, the exchange, the church in this world, that we would live as if we're already in the kingdom, that we would seek first the kingdom, that Jesus, you are that king of kings that meets those deepest needs of our heart. We just want to say thank you. Though this story ends tragically, it ends with hope, longing for a greater king. And so that is you, Jesus. We just want to say thank you. We love you. We praise you. There is no one like you. God, we just want to stand and worship you and respond to you because there is no one like you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Church, let's just stand and, and do this. Let's just end with worship.